Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. So we start as usual with group meditation. So start, close your eyes. If you have a question to post, you're welcome to post that first. We'll get to answering them in the second part. If you don't have a question or once you've asked it, just close your eyes. And focus on your experience, the experience of sitting. And you can notice the breath going into the body, leaving the body. And the experience of the expanding and contracting. If you put your hand on your stomach, you can feel the stomach expanding and contracting. So we're just going to focus on that feeling the tensing and the release. In English, we call this rising and falling. So you focus on the rising and falling of the abdomen. As it rises, just say to yourself, rising. And when it falls, falling. just like a mantra. And the purpose of the mantra is to remind yourself to focus the mind's attention on the actual experience, to keep the mind present, attentive. And as you're focusing on the rising and falling, whenever you notice the mind distracted by something, just shift your attention to that object. If you have feelings, pain, pleasure, calm, make sure to be mindful of those as well. Focus on the pain, just say to yourself, pain, pain, until it goes away. When it's gone, just go back to the rising and falling. If you feel happy, say happy, happy. If you feel calm, say calm, calm. Just stay with it until it goes away. It's not magic. We're not trying to make our experiences stay or go. We're just trying to keep up with them.
If you find yourself thinking, most likely you'll find your focus on the body disturbed by thoughts. So focus on the thoughts, say thinking, thinking. Doesn't matter thoughts about the past or future, good thoughts, bad thoughts. Just try and see them as thought, as thinking. When you note thinking, it's usually gone by the time you've note, so you don't have to keep noting it. Just go back to the rising and falling. If you notice your mind in a certain state or another, uh, some kind of emotion arising, liking something, disliking something, wanting something, or being frustrated or angry or sad, depressed, afraid, worried, just find a word for the mind state. Say to yourself, liking, liking, or disliking, disliking, or whatever the state of mind is. If you feel drowsy, tired, or if you feel restless, anxious, uh, distracted, if you find yourself moving from one object to another, too many things to note, just say distracted, distracted. If you have any worry or doubt, say worried, worried, doubting, doubting. And finally, you can be mindful of the, hint, uh, uh, the senses, 
seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Seeing, hearing, if you see anything, even with your eyes closed, you can note seeing, seeing. Just stay with it until it goes away and then go back to the rising, falling. If you're hearing anything in the room around you or something playing in your mind, say hearing, hearing. Smelling, tasting, if you feel anything on the body, say feeling, feeling.
Okay, so that's our meditation together. Thank you all for participating. Next, we will have the answering of questions. So from here on, anything in the chat will be removed if it's not a question. And mostly we're looking for questions that are related to your own practice that you need an answer to in order to uh, support and help your practice. Or just general, generally helping you in your life that we can answer a way for meditation to help you in your life. So be aware that a lot of the questions are just going to be answered with, have you read our booklet? If not, you consider reading our booklet and maybe taking an at-home course. There's lots of room. The at-home course uh, participants have really dropped off. Uh, I think I'm not doing as many online videos, so there's less of maybe an awareness of our programs. And also we don't have set up locally until uh, the summer. Over the summer we're going to be opening, looks like opening a new center where we'll have a lot more going on and probably a lot more videos. So wait patiently for that. Do you have questions? Is it important to have a meditation teacher or someone to talk to regularly about your practice? I don't have a teacher to talk to weekly. Should I try to get one? It's pretty important. I can't say for you how important it is. You, you, you might not need one. But the chances of you not needing one statistically are, are insanely, are incredibly low. Yeah, one in, I don't know, million, billion or something. People who don't need a teacher, it's a, a very, 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 very rare thing. So it's pretty hard not to say yes, you, a teacher is very important. Um, if you're interested, we offer at-home courses, so you can sign up for one of those if you're interested. You're, you're asking me about this, so if you're interested in our tradition, you're welcome to read our booklet, sign up for an at-home meditation course. It's all free, and then you could meet once a week with a teacher. But that's about meditation. That would relate to practicing meditation, so be sure that you understand what that's all about. I feel isolated. I stay at home, unsure where to go or who to see. Meditation has left me conflicted. I can accept my situation, but feel I am deprived of a happy life. Should I look outwards or inwards? So it's not really fair to say, in my opinion, that meditation has left you conflicted. If you're conflicted, then you're not practicing mindfulness. I mean, you might be conceptually practicing mindfulness, but at the moment that you're conflicted, that's an unmindful state. So if you're mindful of that, the conflicted state will disappear. Being conflicted, having doubt, we would call it doubt, um, is a hindrance. I mean, it's just a general hindrance to your mental well-being, to your mental stability, to your mental fortitude. So it's best if you just discard the doubt and try to see clearly your experience as it is.
I think that's the best answer. It's not the answer you're probably looking for, but I think you should focus on that. And if you do, you'll see that the question is is not probably the one you should be asking. I mean, in the end, you, you sort of don't ask too many questions because you start to see clearly for yourself. If you feel like you're deprived a happy life, that's kind of uh, edging on view. We have this thing in Buddhism we call view. Uh, belief, you know, I mean, it's not a Buddhist concept, but it's something Buddhism focuses on views and beliefs, and uh, not in a good way, not as being a good thing, because views are not meaningful. Reality is meaningful. So just try and put views in their proper perspective. It's just a view, it doesn't necessarily reflect on reality. So try and understand reality. And then the only thing that you might call a view would be an understanding of reality. That's all you have left. Will samatha meditation be easier after practicing vipassana? Oh yeah, sure. Through vipassana your mind becomes clear. I mean, the, the opposite holds as well. If you practice samatha first, vipassana will be easier. So The only thing you don't want to do is only practice samatha, because of course that's called samatha for a reason. It's, it's not um, intrinsically conducive to... It's not intrinsically uh, a cause for wisdom. So you'd have to approach, um, you'd have to use the the, sum, the basis of samatha as a means of cultivating vipassana after. I was meditating 15 to 20 minutes, but when the meditation gets longer, I'm more hesitant to practice and miss some days. However, if I go back to 10 minutes, it seems that I won't miss any. What should I do? Well, I mean, just because you practice long on one day doesn't mean you have to practice long every day. If you can do 30 minutes one day, but only 10 minutes the next day, that's still good, isn't it? I wouldn't worry too much about such issues. If try and do some every day whatever you can uh, but i mean just maybe be clear to yourself that you don't have any expectations because if you have expectations then it's hard sometimes to meet them and then you're discouraged when you can't meet them try and have realistic expectations but another thing you can remind yourself is there's 24 hours in a day that's a lot of hours and how many minutes that turns into 24 times 60 whatever that is and what one is that 1440 i got that right yeah 1440 that's a lot of minutes so subtract 30 you still got a lot of minutes left subtract the time you need to sleep for you still got a lot of minutes left i have emotional flashbacks childhood trauma memories but without images they are extremely intense, but short, like a flash. Too short to see them clearly. How can I deal with them? Well, uh, you see that there's a distinction, first of all, between the memories and the trauma. Memories are not traumatic. Yeah, so so in, in essence, they're not trauma memories, though it's okay to call them that. It's just important to understand 
that they themselves are not the trauma. Memories are just memories. They're, 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 they reoccur because of the trauma. The trauma uh, imprints them on your, your, your brain or whatever. And so you're constantly being triggered by, by brain stimulation. Um, but see them as distinct. Trauma is in the disliking, basically some extreme form of disliking, sadness, whatever it is. And uh, the memory, whatever it is, try and distinguish those. If you confuse them, then it's kind of feels hopeless because you can't stop the memories, and you think the only way you can free yourself is if the memories don't come back. Why? Because they're traumatic, but they're not. The memories are not the trauma, and if you allow the memories and try to face them without the trauma, try to learn how to experience them without the trauma, well, that frees you from the problem, and you don't have to worry about the memories coming back. That's an important distinction that will help you free yourself from suffering. Uh, but as far as things being short, you can note them after they're already gone. Just just a means of reminding yourself, or of course, note the trauma that that exists after they're gone. Note the feelings that exist in the present moment after they're already gone, after the experiences are already gone. I feel a general animosity towards all people that mindfulness isn't supposed to help get rid of, but I don't want that. Any suggestions? Well, mindfulness is supposed to help you get rid of animosity. Mindfulness and animosity can't exist at the same time, so if you replace the animosity with, with mindfulness, you know, whenever you think of someone, if you're able to just say thinking instead of getting angry about it, then you, you'll change your habit. Of course, if you note the animosity, you'll also start to see how the animosity is causing you stress and suffering, and so that'll help to weaken it as well. As far as not wanting it, well, that doesn't help, and that's just more aversion towards it. So it's aversion on top of aversion, and you should note that as well. How does one deal with the fear of death, or rather, being killed? Well, it's just fear. I mean, not just fear, but it, it's nothing, uh, nothing strange. I mean, if it, it, it's fear, um, it's a state of mind, and so it falls under the influence of mindfulness, the, the sphere of mindfulness. So it's something that, I mean, of course, not easy to deal with, but it's easy to know how to work on dealing with it. And so, if you haven't read our booklet, you might read that. It gives some idea of uh, the technique that we use to uh, experience things and, and understand them, become familiar with them, and free ourselves from their power. You could be interested in doing an at-home course, maybe. How do you keep your back straight in sitting posture? Is the body relaxed, or are you holding your back in place? It doesn't really matter. The back, the body can be relaxed, or you can keep it straight. I mean, keeping it straight is not easy for all people, so don't worry too much about it. You might have to find you might find yourself shifting at certain times. Don't be discouraged by that as well. Just be mindful as you shift it. Try and note any pain that you have. If you do intensive practice, you'll find that it improves. 
and over time you're able to free yourself from the tension and because your mind is your your body is less stressed you're able to sit straighter but don't don't worry about that this isn't this is a distinction between mindfulness meditation and most types of samatha meditation where you kind of do want to have a very rigid posture here in mindfulness whatever posture your body is in just be mindful of it as that Since starting the practice, I have lost interest in pursuing material success. But if I don't pursue material success, I feel like my family will be very unhappy. Any advice? Well, it depends why it will make your family feel be very unhappy. If it's because they will starve to death, then well, yeah, that's a reason to pursue material success. If that's the reason for their unhappiness. But if their unhappiness is simply expectations for your happiness or for your success or so on without any um, a, a effect on their well-being then that's on them and that's not any reason to do anything for anyone because expectations like that are a cause for suffering in and of themselves they're not wholesome they're not skillful they're not a cause for happiness and they're a cause for suffering so they they have to learn about those expectations there's really no way to avoid that you can avoid that by fulfilling their expectations. You just encourage them to expect and to um, rely on expectations, which is an unwholesome thing. So it, it, you have to balance things here in the sense that we don't always pursue material success because we are interested in pursuing material success. There are times and there's a aspect of people's life, even a monastic, life um, like acquiring food for the day that's a form of material success a very limited one but i had to acquire food today in order to survive and so it's not that i wanted to pursue material success it's just a function something i knew i had to do or or didn't have to do because i can go without food for a day or two or three but it's reasonable too it's the right thing to do i think not to go out of your way, but to find a reasonable means of acquiring material success. And that can be for yourself, it can be for your family. Um, but of course, I, I don't think that's what you're referring to, and you have to understand the limit of that, that if it goes beyond what is necessary to survive, then you do have to ask yourself why. What's the benefit? I mean, some reasonable things or practical things you can talk to your family about is what the point of it all is, no. and uh, reminders of the fact that we're all going to die, that life is uncertain, that in the large scheme of things, success is not uh, a recipe for happiness or peace, and it's a distraction from things that might be more important, like happiness and peace. When we meditate, we say rising, falling, and we focus on our stomach moving. Is that all we are doing? Time goes faster doing that, but after, I don't feel anything, not happy or unhappy. Is that right? Well, there's nothing right about experiences. Um, so, so looking at, and this is a thing, is meditators will focus on the results of the practice, what happens when I meditate. And that's not the right approach 
um, meditation, or the focus in meditation is not on what you experience. The focus is on how you experience it, cultivating a proper perspective on experience in general. And so it's not really all that interesting whether you're happy or unhappy. What's interesting is how you approach feelings of, in that case, neutrality. So calm, if you feel calm, just say calm, calm. If you notice that time goes faster, noting that. Because as you practice, you're going to see there are certain things you cling to. Uh, if you still have defilements, there's still going to be greed, there's still going to be anger, there's still going to be delusion. And that's what mindfulness helps you to see and helps to change. I keep falling back into patterns and habits and all, just because I am doing all of this alone. Is it wise to find a community? It's hard in my position. I consider joining a temple. What do you think? Yeah, there's great benefits in community, of course. If you can, go for it. But um, as far as falling back into patterns and habits, that's an important thing that you see through the meditation, that habits are not under your control. It can be a long process, especially if you're doing it alone, without a community, without a teacher, or that sort of thing. Um, but Try and don't be discouraged by the fact that you keep falling back. The fact that you're aware of the fact that you keep falling back is a good sign. It's a sign of starting to see a little more clear and being a little more mindful. So just keep that up and it will increase. It will improve. Try your best to make sure you don't fall back into breaking precepts. Don't break the five precepts. And try your best to be mindful. And apart from that, don't be too discouraged. If you're doing that, you're already doing something great. Lately, I've been unable to meditate for any length of time. I have been living in chaos. Is there anything I can do to purify myself to better be able to meditate? Well, be clear that in mindfulness meditation, there's no length of time that you meditate. You meditate for moments, and you're always able to meditate for a moment, this moment, because you don't need to meditate on something outside of this moment. You meditate on whatever is inside this moment. And that's always present. You don't have to go looking for it or changing anything to find that. So whenever you can be mindful, that's, that's practicing. Try and approach it like that. Um, but as far as doing formal practice, it's usually easier to find than we think, and you have to be real with yourself that you're actually trying to find time to meditate. Uh, sometimes we are discouraged by our state of mind, and you shouldn't be, because you can meditate in any state of mind. So just try to find some time to look at your state of mind, not to change it or to expect it to be some something that it's not. So you don't purify yourself to be better able to meditate. You meditate in order to purify yourself. Just go ahead and do it. Even though you feel like you're impure, that's that's okay. That's what we want to learn about. Should the practice of metta be a regular part of one's meditation practice? I think it's fair to say that it should be, yeah. I, I don't think, I mean, if you're not doing metta, I don't think you have to be worried, but it's a good thing to incorporate. Um... If you have a regular uh, addition of metta practice, 
right? That's wholesome. How long is your at-home online meditation course? Can I talk with you weekly without actually doing the course? Just doing my normal daily practice? The course is about 15 or so weeks. I've never really timed it or counted out how long it is, but that's what I assume it is, 15, maybe 16, maybe 17 weeks, 18 maybe at most. Um... But no, we, I don't do weekly interviews unless you're doing the course. And you have to be doing at least an hour a day, half walking, half sitting, to start. Why is it said that if one meditates regularly, it is highly likely that they will encounter the technique in future lives? Should we take solace in this? Yes, for sure, because uh, you may not be able to attain uh, the, the goal of the practice in this life, but the benefits of the practice extend beyond. You know, they affect the mind on a very fundamental level, and the mind is what carries you not just from one life to the next, but from one moment to the next. So your future changes if you practice mindfulness. and you're much more likely to not only encounter Buddhism, but um, be readily accepting of it, able to practice it. In the time of the Buddha, there were people who just had to hear the name Buddha. Like when we all heard about Buddhism, most of us were probably not that impressed by, by the word or by the name or by the idea, but people in the time of the Buddha, just hearing that word, enlightened one, awakened one, were just uh, fainted. There was a king who fainted when he heard it. He was just so so overwhelmed by the importance of it. And that's definitely because of uh, his connection with Buddhism in past lives. Or it's just his connection with goodness from past lives. I'm not a Buddhist. I don't have a religion. Would meditation still help me in my death? If you practice meditation, we can call you a Buddhist. Or you can or not. It's, I mean, my the point. What I mean is that that uh, that's not really important. What, what you say you are, um, because when we talk about people being Buddhists, we really just mean that they're practicing mindfulness, they're practicing Buddhism, practicing the things the Buddha taught. We don't have an in-group or an out-group or a, a membership or anything like that. Um, I mean, you, you, you do have a religion. Everyone has a religion. Religion is what you take seriously. So if, if, if you take meditation seriously, that's a part of your religion. And it will only help you if, it, if it's part of your religion, meaning if you take it seriously. Meditation can't really help you if it's just a hobby. So if you truly have no religion, you don't take anything seriously, then... Well, if meditation's included in that, mindfulness is included in that, then it's not really going to help you. It wouldn't help you much. You do have to take it fairly seriously. You don't have to be like stressed or serious or or uh, stre you're stressed about it. But that's not what taking something seriously means. That just means giving it a serious uh, chance and and seriously putting it to work, applying yourself to it wholeheartedly, seriously, meaningfully.
can seeing clearly be attained by being mindful of our daily actions and feelings rather than with meditation? I don't see the difference. I mean, being mindful. Um, what you mean is formal meditation practice. Uh, it's possible, but it's it's not easy because you're not trained. It's like sending someone out into battle and saying, okay, go out on the battlefield and learn how to fight. It doesn't really work in practice. You're much better off training to be a soldier first before they send you out into battle. So formal meditation is kind of like that. It's much more beneficial to do formal meditation than to just try to be mindful in daily life. I mean, that being said, it's important that, that you practice both, of course, because the time that you're not doing formal meditation, it, it cultivates the bad habits back again. So applying it in daily life is important. But without the basis of formal practice, it's not easy to do. Is killing any specific living being worse than another? Do specific living beings have more intrinsic worth than others? So beings don't actually exist, therefore they don't have any intrinsic worth. Uh, they're not reality. It's not really a great way of looking at karma, which is really what you're talking about, right? Karma is your intention in the mind. So how you perceive the being is going to be important. Um, yeah. If the being is, for example, very pure-minded, then the effort you have to undertake or the, the mental gymnastics you have to undertake to think it a good thing to kill the person becomes harder. It's easier to kill, say, a wild animal charging you viciously than, than uh, a, a meditator sitting there peacefully, right? So that's going to highly affect your mental state much more than the intrinsic nature of the being. But that being said, of course, humans are, um, only humans are really capable of that kind of purity. So if it's, if it's, for example, a difference between a human who is trying to kill you and a human who is sitting peacefully meditating, um, I would say killing the, the person trying to kill you is, I mean, it's still unwholesome, but it's a far less egregious sort of perverted mind state it's a very perverse mind state to kill an innocent person right but it's not because of the nature of the innocent person it's because of the perversion of the mind state um, i think there's a lot less perversion required to kill say a mosquito than a human being we don't really see them in the same way and there's not generally the same sense of I mean, it's still awful it's a terrible thing to kill a mosquito much more terrible than we think but I mean, just trying to, to, to differentiate between states of mind because that's what's important. And so because it takes very little effort to kill a mosquito, there's going to be a lot less uh, anger involved. There's the annoyance and the cruelty as well, but, but it's not as strong. And because there's less effort required, there's, there's less moments, right? If you have to kill a pig or something, killing a pig is a horrible thing. People hurt themselves. I knew of a man who threw his back out while he was trying to kill a pig because the pig is screaming and, and of course doesn't want to die. So there's a lot more room for cruelty 
but that's um that's that's just the the description of the actual experience which is important the nature of things is not important the nature of the experience of our actions that's what's important How can one deal with fear of Nibbana? Fear of anything is just an experience. Just try and focus on that fear. You don't have to differentiate fear of Nibbana from fear of spiders. It's still just fear. Just try and not afraid, afraid. I mean, I guess what's behind your question is, how do I practice something knowing it's going to lead to something that I, I'm afraid of, right? I mean, the real, I think the best answer is that we don't practice mindfulness focused on any results. We practice mindfulness focused on the quality of our mind in the present moment. So mindfulness isn't about going to Nibbana. Mindfulness is about clarity of mind. And if you don't, like, if clarity of mind scares you, then you got a problem. <laughs> but you should not afraid, afraid, and you'll have a clearer mind. That's what's important. The thing about having clarity of mind is it frees you, it helps your mind let go. When the mind lets go, there's an experience of Nibbana, which is just freedom from suffering. It's not anything scary. Not to trivialize it, it is a super mundane experience, but it's uh, not anything magical or, or esoteric. It's just the complete cessation of suffering. Do meditators always have to look solemn, look formal, not allowed to laugh, to be happy or get excited? Um, well, the reason why meditation meditators usually look solemn or, or perhaps even formal is because they're very much focused on their uh, practice. They are uh, not seeking out pleasure or excitement. They are perhaps quite concerned with their state of mind and dealing perhaps with unpleasant emotions that they have habitually in their mind. They're facing things that are not easy to face and so they're often struggling. Um, but that's that, that part is... is fairly easy to understand and to answer i mean it's 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 not not immediately obvious and this is a question that of course is i asked but there's the answer it's just that they're they're struggling you know they're dealing with things that are hard to deal with um but the other part is is not at all related not being allowed meditation mindfulness isn't about being allowed to experience things it's about how you experience things a meditator will be less inclined to laugh or get excited um, they'll of course be inclined to be happy happiness is nothing wrong with that but uh, they're less like they're less likely to laugh or get excited not because they're afraid to or because it's forbidden but because they just don't have the inclination because those things are usually caused by desire and, and uh, attachment and so on Can a non-enlightened person have their sense of self completely vanish? 
No, it won't vanish. Well, completely. If by completely you mean um, eter eternally, then no. But if you mean completely by temporarily, but but wholly and completely, then of course we we all this. We don't always have a sense of self twenty four hours a day, even people who are not enlightened. But it keeps coming back unless you become enlightened. And of course, it's very hard to un to to recognize when you have it. It's very easy for it to arise. I mean, it's because it's delusion. It always arises with lack of mindfulness. So you don't, you aren't really ever aware that you. Have. You can only notice afterwards. Very hard to see. If Buddhism is about self-liberation, it appears inherently selfish. What is the point of being compassionate? loving or caring instead of being self-centered so you're missing something in that first argument the premise is buddhism is about self-liberation the conclusion is it appears inherently selfish uh, the missing premise is that uh, you have the quality of mind that sees things that are about self-liberation as inherently selfish i'm sorry i don't that's just i used to i took a course many many years ago before i was a monk on argument um, so formally, the way to pick apart your argument is that, but the key here is that it doesn't follow. That premise doesn't, the conclusion doesn't follow from that premise. Something being about self-liberation doesn't, liberation doesn't make it selfish. Because self-liberation is, is, um, is a, a positive thing, not just for oneself, but for everyone around. I guess the knowledge and the appreciation that's missing from that kind of argument and that leads to the premise of I have the view that such things are inherently selfish. Um, is that you don't appreciate that think that self-liberation is such a good thing, uh, and and is beneficial just in a general sense, not just personally beneficial. Um, but that being said, it also depends how you how you define selfishness, um, and it's usually the, the the implication of calling something selfish because it's just a word, right? But the, usually the, it implies a aversion or an avoidance of helping others, a um, declining to help others when the opportunity arises. And of course, that is is a hindrance to your, your liberation. You can't become liberated if you're um, cruel, if you're ignoring the suffering of others. I mean, ignoring the, if you're declining the help that you might give the help that is uh, reasonable and, and uh, right to give at any given time. So it, it generally becomes a very important part of your practice towards self-liberation to help others, just because it's, a, it's the right thing to do most, much of the time. But um, it's interesting how you ask that, and then you ask the opposite, it seems. What is the point of being compassionate? instead of being self-centered. I guess the what you're saying here, the, the idea you're presenting is um, for a Buddhist, right? You know, why, why then does Buddhism talk about being compassionate if it's just about self-liberation? And Well, that's basically what I'm saying. So I've already kind of answered that, is that being compassionate is just, a, just the right thing to do. Um, it's not something to obsess over, but... Um, in the in the sense that you don't have to go out of your way to actively cultivate these things, they're they're a good way of balancing 
what might be cruelty in the mind or uh, hatefulness in the mind, selfishness in the mind. A good way to counter those things, which are also, I mean, selfishness as well, being uh, harmful towards one's liberation. Help others and you help yourself. Help yourself and you help others. That's what the Buddha said. That's a quote or a paraphrase. Is it necessary to dissolve negative feelings associated with those past memories as they can trigger and affect one's present, and since they will show up anyway in the moment of death? Is it necessary to dissolve negative feelings? Um, yeah, so the word feeling is just ambiguous, but I'm guessing you mean emotions in the sense of reactions. Because feelings aren't negative. I just use the word feeling. I mean, I, I, I know it's not the only way of using it, but I try and distinguish feelings from emotions because if you feel pain, for example, or if you feel happy or if you feel calm, that's what I call feelings. Or if you feel some physical sensation, the sensation could be called feelings. So we usually note them as feelings and pain as pain and pleasure as pleasure. But um, as far as negative emotions, like disliking, sadness, and so on. It is necessary to dissolve them, but the practice of the dissolving them is really just being mindful of them and being mindful of what triggers them. Um, but they're important. If you're not vigilant about them, they can consume you, they encourage bad habits, they corrupt the mind. That's what creates what we call trauma, is the repeated uh, encouragement and feeding of our bad uh, emotions. They get stronger and stronger until they become overwhelming and unmanageable and unwieldy and uncontrollable. Is gratefulness a wholesome state? Yes. Gratefulness involves wisdom and appreciation of what people have done. It involves mindfulness, the awareness of um, the reality of the situation. Uh, it involves appreciation and, and metta and so on, humility. Gratefulness is a very good state. Does anger manifest as violent perceptions only? Are there other sankharas to note for anger? I don't have an answer for this question. I'm not quite sure what you're getting at, but anger is anger. It manifests as anger. I would note it as anger. Don't overthink it or analyze it. What is the root cause of the desire for praise, and how does one overcome this wish to be thought well of? Well, delusion is usually the cause for any desire. I mean, it's of course there's self-view, which is a kind of delusion, that sort of thing. But I would still argue, say that specifically you can't point to one cause for desire for praise, for example. Different people could desire praise for different reasons. It's not really all that important. It's not the point of mindfulness. What's interesting is the nature of desire, the nature of praise, the nature of the thought about praise that triggers your desire for it. 
because when you see those, then you you are able to break apart the idea that they are somehow self and see them for what they are as experiences that arise and cease. And when you do that, you overcome the wish for it because there's no sense of them being me or mine or good or bad. Okay, Pante, that is all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay, thank you all. Thank you, Chris and uh, Rahid, for helping out. And Napapat, do I know Napat? Do I know? Have we met before? No, I know Napat. I know Napat, but I think that's a Thai person. It's good to see Thai people. Good to see so many people. Have a good day, everyone. Sad, sad. Have a good week. Wish you sad. all the best.